Hello, friend, and thank you as always sincerely for listening to The Tully Show. I think you will find today's episode is both fun and thought-provoking, and I will get it started very, very shortly. But first, speaking of fun and thought-provoking, let me remind you, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. You've heard me talk about it before. I'm putting up between two and three Patreon-exclusive new podcasts there just about every single week. If you're listening to this show on the day it goes up on a Friday, that means there is another brand new edition of Tully Time. That's the week wrap-up edition of all of the most important news headlines in the world. For example, did you know in 1997, Sting, yes, that Sting, was swindled by an Italian man by the name of Duke Simone Vincenzo Velluti Zatti di San Clemente. And here nowadays, 20 some odd years later, he has finally gotten his revenge. Do you wanna know what this is all about? Yes, you do. And here's the best part. You can hear the show for free. I've left it open to everybody. Just click on it and you can listen to it free of charge. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a reporter and the author of a book released earlier this summer entitled Americanon, an unexpected U.S. history in 13 best-selling books. Hello and welcome, Jess McHugh. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, fittingly for the subject of this book, you are joining us from that most all-American of places, Paris, France. Indeed. As we all know, a great place for us Americans. Oh, yeah, they love us there. And the feeling has always been mutual. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, congratulations, first of all, congratulations on the book existing and coming out of court, of course, and congratulations on living in Paris. We've, we've all thought about it, especially over the last four to six years. When did you actually <laughs> pull the trigger? I know you're a little uh, unconventionally bi-coastal, typically talking about New York, LA, but you, you, you maintain a residence in Paris. Yes, yes. So I, it's a bit of, to make a long story short, my mom is from Boston and I grew up in Boston and, you know, in that kind of working class Boston way, she thought having a daughter who spoke French would be wicked classy. So she put me in French class when I was a kid. I moved here when I was 18. Uh, So I had already, I already spoke French and then, yeah, I moved back more permanently about two years ago. So it's been, it's been a chunk of time. That's terrific. The family and I were there very shortly, thank goodness, uh, right before things shut down, we got in our long overdue family trip to uh, to Paris. And um, yeah, given given the way the political winds swirl in another two or three years, we might be I might be hitting you up for a restaurant recommendations. Oh, so. yes, please do. Fingers crossed for the, our, the, our election next year. So as soon as I heard about your book, I wanted to talk to you about it. I love your subject. I love any attempt at at popular history, you know, not the major historical bullet points that we all learned in school. What was actually happening on the ground, so to speak, in America over the course of America's history? Also, just from the, like the the cover or the the art that I saw, I recognized at least one to maybe as many as four of the books that you talked about. I didn't have a ton of books in my household growing up, but I there was a well thumbed copy of the Betty Crocker 
red and mm. white cookbook for sure in our kitchen among maybe uh, uh, there may have been a uh, uh, how to win friends and influence people somewhere tucked away. How about yourself? How many of the books that you write about researched for this book were around you growing up? Good question. Many of them. So, I mean, just to kind of briefly summarize, the idea is a history of the U.S. through popular books. And so we're talking not great novels that, you know, you're forced to read in school or not everybody's reading, but books that are on everybody's shelf. So the best-selling cookbook, the best-selling almanac, the best-selling business book, which is how to win friends and influence people. I would say there were, I mean, some of the most informative in my life were the old farmer's almanacs. I grew up in this small town in Massachusetts. And so that was kind of omnipresent. I also loved Webster's Dictionary because unsurprisingly, I was quite a young nerd. And so I would read the dictionary when I was falling asleep because I thought it would make me seem smart, but it mostly just made me mispronounce a lot of words that I didn't understand. Uh, we also had the Betty Crocker cookbook because my grandmother is a first generation Italian immigrant and it was kind of a way of learning how to cook foods for my grandfather that she didn't eat growing up. So she had never baked cookies. She had never made a rose. She didn't know about Irish stew. Uh, so I would say at least for me, I think half or more, more than half I was for I had grown up with in some some form or another. So you knew of what you of what you speak and of what you write. Um, what? What was the basic criteria for the books that you that you chose for this? Um, are they just the biggest bestsellers? Uh, um, yes and no. I wanted it all to be. I wanted them all to be didactic books in in some sense, which is to say they're explicitly teaching you something. Because I found that interesting. You know, with novels, there is an expectation that you can interpret it in multiple ways because it's not one true thing, and they have the information and they're giving it to you. Whereas with a reference book or a how-to book, whether it's a dictionary or a school primer or a cookbook, the idea is they have the facts and they're giving you the facts. And there's no notion that there might be an ulterior motive or an agenda behind the quote-unquote facts that they're giving you. So that was part of my part of my kind of prism of choosing the books. I also wanted to choose how-to books because throughout history, they just sold more than novels. I mean, before the late 19th, early 20th century, novels were not necessarily something that everybody read. And so I wanted to look at the books that everybody read. And then to try to kind of avoid as much personal or regional bias, I was focusing as much on the numbers as I could. So what were the books that sold 20 or 30 or 75 million copies? And, you know, what did they teach people about what it meant to be an American? It had never occurred to me just how many really blockbuster self-help or, or, or reference books there were because when you think of why does the, the the biggest possible reading audience read you would think for pleasure and i was trying to think of what the common thread was i'm sure you've thought about this a little bit yourself it seemed to me that most not all of the books that you that you talk about in your book are based on the idea and i think this is probably a fairly uniquely american idea that we're all just a couple of small and achievable tweaks away <laughs> from becoming our best selves Exactly. That's I think that's the, at the heart of so many of these books. It's saying, you know, you can buy this book for, usually for fairly cheap. And all you need to do is maybe eat some more vegetables, wake up earlier, know when to mate your cows, know how to spell these words. And you could be richer. You could be more well liked. You could be more attracted to the opposite sex. And I think in many ways, this is a deeply American belief that a, you know, our destiny is in, is in our control and B the only thing standing between us and having more is our own efforts. Uh, so I think that's something that shows up again and again, regardless of how flawed that idea might be. 
Well, and it's an idea that's alive and well. It seems like it's there from the genesis of the, but I, we're witnessing an explosion of it now. I, I'm sort of out of touch with uh, what the latest book is that everybody's reading that's going to fix their lives forever. But the internet is obviously, uh, uh, just social media alone is a, is a, it's a tremendous outlet for this. So this, this remains um, a fundamental characteristic of, um, well, well, is it a uniquely American thing? I found myself wondering about that. Do other countries have a long list of massive best-selling self-help? This is—I don't want to say it's self-help books, but for, for to cut to the chase, is sure. this is this a uniquely American mass literary phenomenon? I would say it's not uniquely, but it's it's very um, very American in many ways. So yes, I think a lot of them do fall under the umbrella of self-help. I don't think that's wrong. And I mean, for instance, in, in France or in, or in other countries in Europe, there is self-help. It certainly exists. It is popular. I think the difference is that there's often a much broader understanding of the things that are available to help you or the ways that you might better yourself. So for instance, in France, I feel like people are less likely to go out and buy a self-help book because they know that they could say enroll in a master's degree for 500 euros a year, or they could seek financial aid, or, you know, there's just, there are a lot more options. They could join a union. I mean, I think that the, the options for becoming more successful sometimes feel a little bit more directly related to what can I control? What can I do? How can I be better in America? And that's not necessarily the same in other countries. So you're saying over there it doesn't depend entirely on how strongly one can pull in one's own bootstraps. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, the book calls itself an unexpected history. Um, what did delving into these books reveal to you about, the, as a big question, the American character? We're talking about a couple hundred years at this point. Um, what surprised you? So much. So I think the thing that surprised me the most was that as a child, you know, growing up in, in public schools, you still get taught, I think, to a certain degree that our documents are, you know, the Constitution and maybe the Federalist Papers and Bill of Rights and, and all this, and that this is really the kind of nucleus of American thought. And I came to see more and more the ways in which that might not necessarily be true. Certainly, these are important documents, but they're not the documents that everybody reads. You know, even today, I think less than half of Americans have read the Constitution. So, Part of what was surprising to me was if you really want to understand the American character in 1850 or 1950 or now, you actually might be better suited picking up a book like Lean In or, you know, the Betty Crocker cookbook in 1950 and see what is it that people really believe. And then on kind of a more macro level, I was often surprised by the people themselves and, and what they wanted from these books that might seem so banal to us. So, for instance, the dictionary was written by Noah Webster and his idea was this is a, you know, a linguistic declaration of independence. We are going to make American English as different from British English as Swedish and German, as Swedish and Dutch are from German. And this is how we're going to be better and more Christian and more patriotic. And so the idea was, you know, you're really forming a nationalist, patriotic American character through words, which is, is quite a radical idea. And I think in many ways he was successful. I guess that was sort of something that was, well, I guess revolutionary people have always had the idea that if you control the language, you control the way people think. But if, if, if anyone has ever wondered, and most of us must have asked ourselves at some point or another, why do we in America and O-R words O-R, and in the yeah. UK it's invariably O-U-R, look no further than Noah Webster. I mean, that alone is a hell of a claim to fame. Mm-hmm. 
Certainly. And his, his whole idea was, look, we need to write American English the way that educated Americans speak. And, and that was kind of his main motivator. Some of his more extreme versions did not make it in. He wanted tongue to be written T-U-N-G and women to be written W-I-M-M-E-N. So not all of his ideas were winners, but a lot I've got of them. A, I've got a nine-year-old that would make a lot of sense, too. I think it makes a ton of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if we're gonna do it, we may as well let's go. Let's go, go all, all the way. way. Right, we're, we're <laughs> Americans. We can spell things phonetically. Um, exactly. In the uh, in the introduction, you mentioned the shifting notion of what it means to people to think of themselves as American. Again, a hopelessly broad question, but in what ways would you say that that notion of of self and of countryhood may have shifted from say seventeen ninety to nineteen ninety? Sure. So I think in the most kind of broad sense, we've just we've become a, a more diverse nation and our definition of American has slowly and incompletely, in my opinion, caught up to that. So I think, you know, in the revolutionary period, people were initially def you had Americans of German and French and British descent. And, and the idea was, how do we define, how do we define ourselves? And you can have a certain number of values that you're going to lay out in your constitution, but often, and unfortunately what works best is you say, we're going to define ourselves by what we're not. So initially it was, we're not Brits. And then it was, you know, we're not Catholics. We're not certain immigrant groups. And so the kind of the umbrella of American expands more and more. And I, I think what I tried to sort of urge in the introduction and especially in the epilogue is, you know, how can we maybe push this a little bit further? How can we maybe, you know, reconsider some of the some of the things that American has come to mean and perhaps not necessarily in, in the most positive sense? I want to ask you some questions about the specific books themselves, a few of them anyway, but um, mm -hmm. in a general sense, I'm assuming, I, I don't, I, well, maybe you did read Noah Webster's original dictionary cover to cover. You mentioned that was a hobby of yours as a child, but... <laughs> I'm assuming you spent a lot of time with most, if not all of the books, just on a pure personal level. Did you enjoy any of them? Do any of them hold up? Mm. This is an excellent question. There are a lot that are kind of funny and a little bit entertaining. Like for instance, Emily Post's etiquette, I think is funny because she has, it's at like 600 pages long. And she even has a section on what to do if you meet the president, as if this were a thing that people would need to be aware of. Um, but in terms of books that I still read, I love the old Farmer's Almanac. I think it's kind of this whimsical, beautiful meditation on art and <laughs> attention and nature and observation. And the thing that I find so unique about it is it's deeply random. I'm looking at it on my shelf right now. And this year, you know, it had uh, a, a poem, it had, you know, a recipe for split bee soup, it talked about hawk watches in Duluth, and it just is like things that you would never think that you would want to know about, but as soon as you read about it, you think, this is fascinating, I wish I had more of this. So that's something that I enjoy. So you're, you're telling me you keep current with the old farmers? <laughs> yes, the 2021 <laughs> edition. Yeah, hot off the presses. Uh, um, yeah, throw out last year's. That's no good to you anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking I, I'd, I'd never really thought about the old Farmer's Almanac. I don't know that I've ever even opened a copy of one. I wonder if part of the secret of its particular success, because as you say in the book, there were any number of other Farmer's Almanacs that would have been a very um, practical and helpful thing to have at your fingertips in the late 18th century. I don't think anybody in America hates 
rural New Englanders. Because when you think agrarian America, the South comes to mind, and then that's loaded for a lot of people. Some people are very strongly for. Some people, you know, want to have the Dukes of Hazard car. Some people don't. You might think nowadays about California, but. I, I think we just can all generally agree, and maybe Midwesterners as well, but I, I wonder if it's that people will have always and will always respond to the New England brand of folksy charm. Yes, I think so too. There's something about, you know, the stone walls and yeah. this kind of supposedly slave-free uh, idyllic area of, you know, single family farms and all of that. And there's there's certainly some falsity to that, but there's also some truth to it. And I think part of what really works about this almanac is that it, it marries the kind of love of small farmer with Republican virtues, Republican with the small R, like a Republic, in terms of this almanac had court dates and the salary of what the president made and all of these kind of jokes about how smart farmers were. So it very much was kind of vaunting the small farmer as, as the ideal citizen. And I think that's part of what made it last. And we also just, we have nostalgia for that time when people were, you know, taking up arms and fighting against the British and then going home to their farm. And so there's, there's, I think there's something that sticks in our imagination about that. Right. That's sort of the interesting thing about it is that it, is that it persisted you know, mm-hmm. that as as people leave the farms and move to towns and cities and begin working in factories, mm-hmm. they still want the old farmer's almanac. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's like, because I can understand the aspirational nature of, mm-hmm. well, I probably won't meet the president, but it'd be kind of just the, the simple act of thinking about what I might do is a titillating concept to me personally, thinking about which variety of corn I might grow this year isn't mm-hmm. as appealing. And yet, you're literally still buying the thing. It is an enduring, yeah. it is an enduring myth of this lifestyle. And I think that's what's kind of quite stunning about it is that I'm not alone in this. I mean, people are more likely in 2021 to have bought the old farmer's almanac than to have subscribed to the New York Times. And I think that that statistic alone is so shocking. I mean, it sells between three and four million copies a year. Its rival sells between two to three million copies a year. So people are certainly getting something out of it. And it just is, it's curious to me because exactly that, you know, do they need to know the mating tables and the tide tables? No. (laughs) Are there, I don't know if you would know the answer to this. I don't blame you if you don't. Are there corollaries to this in other countries? When everybody else moved to factory city life, did they all keep reading about I want to say actuary tables. That's finance. You know what I'm talking about. Mm, are there are there yeah. are there international corollaries to the old farmers almanac and its existing competitors? I am not sure about that. I would have to look yeah. into that more. I know that almanacs existed, you know, in in Europe. They started, you know, in in Europe, but it's not something that you read now. Like when I when I said to my some of my French friends that I had the almanac and that I was writing about it, most of them had never read or heard or seen an almanac. So it's certainly not that. Although I would say. Most countries in general have will find a channel for their nostalgia. So it might not necessarily be an almanac, but they'll find an object or, you know, something that represents this imagined better time. Um, We've already talked a little bit about Noah Webster's uh, dictionary. The thing that I was not aware of uh, in regard to that was his notion of American exceptionalism and and just America's relationship to that. I guess I never really thought about, I know where we are now and I know that our founding documents were fairly aspirational, but in terms of actually, you know, like, as you say, 
how many of us have read the Constitution? Even if you have, it's not something that you spend a lot of time with. It's not, hold on a second before we go to the store. I just need to quick refer to the Constitution. <laughs> exactly. A dictionary you do. And, um, you know, it's kind of impossible to, I guess, impart information without a bias. But talk a little bit about his specific bias, his zeal for that bias, mm-hmm. and how effective he was in, in, in uh, promulgating that bias. Yes, exactly. He was something of a fanatic in a couple different ways. And even, you know, the current editors at Merriam-Webster once referred to him as a wonk. Uh, And I think, so he was motivated by two things. One was, as you said, this idea of American exceptionalism. And some of his early writings, he says, you know, our language is going to supersede all languages on earth. More people are going to speak American English than any other language. And at the time, it was like, you know, 13 colonies scattered across quite a wide landmass. And he was right. And he was right. That's what's so um, insane and amazing about it. It's like, wow, okay. And he almost guessed the number to a T, like 300 million, million, something like that. Anyway, so his idea was in changing these these spellings and, you know, using examples instead of Shakespeare, we're going to use George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. And this is how people are going to learn to love and appreciate their culture. And he even said, you know, the average American school child should know more about his own short history than that of Greece or Rome, which I think he's as arguably the truth as well today. So, yeah, I think, you know, his influence was was widespread. The dictionary has sold 56 million copies, the collegiate version, which came out, you know, less than 100 years ago. And his speller, which was a book that taught people how to read and came out in the 18th century, sold 100 million copies. And we're talking about a, a country in which 15 million people lived. So when you look at that, it's just that arc is humongous over over a century. And his secondary motivation was that he was born in Christian and he kind of wanted to express his love of God through language. And so a lot of his definitions are about how do we put Christianity into the way that we speak? And I think in some ways, you know, perhaps you could argue that he was successful in that. I I think even just the comparison of living in France, where it's very secular, it's very strange to to hear people say God bless America in a speech or the way that people invoke biblical language. And even now, you know, uh, born again Christian homeschoolers are looking for the Webster's to reprint the dictionaries. They can educate their kids with this 1828 book. You mentioned the speller. It's it. I'd be hard pressed off the top of my head to think of anyone who did more to not just encourage, but enable mass literacy. Wow. This guy is, this guy's sort of an unsung hero in a lot of different ways. He dropped the U's from flavor. And as you say, may have educated statesmen's children and uh, slaves at the same time. Right. Exactly. And I think that's, what's so incredible, incredible about it. And what also makes it so American is that people are, everybody's learning from the same book. And, you know, later it was the McGuffey readers before that it was the New England primer. But in general, it's like you have this cheap, easily accessible book that's there to teach you how to speak, especially how to read. And the idea is that this is going to be how you're more socially mobile, because if you, especially in the 18th century, there was really no difference between speaking like an educated person and being an educated person. I mean, there were some people who went to Yale and Harvard, but George Washington, for instance, wasn't one of them. and, And that was the case for a lot of people. That's a, that's a terrific point, right? If you could, if you could walk the walk then that was mm-hmm. all that you were you you were the best lawyer we had in the in the county regardless of whether or not you had a right. diploma <laughs> hanging Very on your much wall was a, a fake it till you make it type of situation 
Right, which applies, uh, you use that phrase uh, specifically in regard to Benjamin Franklin and the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. You say, and I have no reason to doubt you, that it is with Benjamin Franklin, perhaps more than anyone else, that this American myth of pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps originates. I think so, because, I mean, it's, you know, it comes out in 1793, I want to say, and the Constitution 1789. So it's, it's you know, we certainly had perhaps the existence of that notion before out in folklore or what have you. But it's the first time that we've put into print the rags to riches story and how to get it. So it's not only is he describing in this book his own rise from being the poor son of a soap maker in Boston, but you also have his 13 virtues section, which is very self-healthy. And he lays out, you know, this graph of virtues that you need to follow every day. And you're supposed to check off the boxes of what you do. And he even says, here's what I do in a day. It's almost like the, what I eat in a day type of thing. I get up at 4 a.m. and then I do my reading and then I eat my vegetables and I don't drink ale. And so again, it's this idea that through small behavior modifications, you can dramatically change your life. What is this thing with waking up early and being productive? At a certain point, I've never experimented with it personally, <laughs> so maybe that's why I'm doing podcasts in my nine-year-old son's bedroom. But at a certain point, aren't you bound to get diminishing returns when you're starting your day at 2 a.m. and everyone else is starting theirs at 8? I certainly think so. I think it's got to be some kind of Protestant work mentality happening there. And the irony too, and, and Ben Franklin is the first to say this, is that he didn't always practice what he preached. You know, he talks about temperance and purity, but, you know, he was partying it up in Paris and having affairs with people and, you know, flirting with Marie Antoinette. So we can't all be it all. Yeah, there may not have been ale, but there might have been a bit of wine involved. <laughs> in the mix. Right, right, right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. You got to water that down. Um, uh, Emily Post, you know what I found so funny? I always thought I was um, unique and special in this regard. You you say that Emily Post's etiquette book was the second most stolen library book of the entire 20th century after the Bible. I had a, I bought Miss Manners' Guide to Life or Living, whatever it was called, and somebody stole mine. Apparently, that's a wow. thing. Yeah, I was. Wow. A, yeah, I was working in the basement of a, an apartment building, so some contractor stole my Miss Manners book. It's bizarre. Yeah, I was curious. Did you ever find out who it was and why? I would be. I would want to know. I hope they read every single page of it. That's all I can say. <laughs> now they're a debutante. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It may have been a young Kardashian. I don't know. <laughs> um, as with the uh, with the farmer's almanac, Mike question essentially the same question the number of people to whom this book might ever apply is far smaller than the number of people who read it or perhaps even stole it what do you think drew all of the people who were never going to have to differentiate between little spoons and big spoons to to to, to read this and and to to treat it as a sort of bible Right. So I think like a lot of books in our sort of American canon, American belief system, if you want to call it, it's a deeply aspirational book. So she says in the introduction, you don't need money and you don't need high birth to be a person of you know gentility. All you need is courtesy toward others. And this etiquette is essentially just courtesy toward others. And the idea is if you can memorize 
this, these 600 pages of these thousands of gestures and postures and the kind of secretary, you know, um, paper to use at your country house, then you can make it. And so I think it's, it's much like the great Gatsby in that way. It's the idea that you, all you need to do to kind of pass the barriers to entry is to act like the people who are already through the gates. And that's, always going to be, again, is going to be an enduring idea. And I think what's fascinating about this one in particular is that it came out in the 20s at a time when we would think, eh, manners are kind of going out the window, it's the roaring 20s. But the reality is that for people who want to rise up, especially then, you had to at least know what the rules were to break them you know, properly, so to speak. And I think it shows up even today in much subtler ways, which is to say, you know, when people chew with their mouths open at an important, you know, meeting or people who maybe speak in a kind of very heavily slanged way, they might not always be treated as their Emily Post counterparts, even if they have the same skill set, the same intellect. So I think that's part of what endures. Well, and I guess it, it does, again, rest on a fairly uniquely American set of circumstances, if you have the same social aspiration or financial aspiration mm-hmm. and you're in Europe, if you don't have the right last name, there are doors which will forever be closed to you. And of course, there's exactly. the Mayflower families in, in, in America, but you can you can clean up new money. You know, uh, Don, sure. Cor- Don Corleone could rightly dream that his son might be a senator. Right. And that's what's kind of funny about Emily Post, too. And she was one of the people who surprised me the most was that she didn't come over. Well, actually, her mother's family did come over on the Mayflower, but they had made their money in coal. And so to, you know, the New York families, they thought that she was gauche and, you know, new money and therefore not one of them in many ways. And her book was kind of this vengeance on her own class, mocking them. And she was, you know, thinly disguising some people's social error, shall we say, in her book. And part of what's funny about her, too, is that her writing career comes out of scandal. You know, her husband had cheated on her and he got caught in this very public way. And there had been a, he was blackmailed. There was a blackmail trial. And so she gets divorced and she has to work for her money. And that's how she ends up writing a book about the social contract, which I think is just the deepest irony of all and and kind of gave me a strange new appreciation for her. Out of all of these books, I don't know that I ever opened the Betty Crocker uh, cookbook, but I I did take a crack at how to win friends and influence people. I swear, just because I knew it was an important historical relic. Um, (laughs) I think I made it about 15 pages in. This is five or six years ago. The only thing I recall, he starts off with this observation that um, nobody thinks that they are evil. When Al Capone is, is caught and put on trial, he says, after all the things I've done for these people, Yes. You know, so he said the key to, to, to winning people over is understanding that everybody sees themselves as the protagonist of their own mm-hmm. personal story. Um, uh, 30 million copies sold still somehow moves a couple hundred thousand copies per year, presumably not all in um, a uh, ironic or historical <laughs> curiosity. Presumably. <laughs> right. So I I don't I don't I don't know what you're going to get out of reading um, you know something from the 1800s but people do still people who are who are want to be movers and shakers do occasionally still consult with how to win friends and influence people did that book hold any practical value for you do you have any takeaways from that that inform your own personal life 
Eh, it's tough because, you know, it was written in quite a different era, era for quite a different audience. You know, it comes out in the 30s during the Depression, and it's really kind of a manual to making it in corporate America in many ways. It's about remembering people's names at cocktail parties and being able to kind of uh, move and shake with the middle manager. So not so much. There's a lot about it that I kind of take issue with in general it can sometimes it can feel a little bit manipulative the one thing that that i have taken away from it is he says something like if you hate something that somebody loves you don't necessarily need to tell them that right away and i found this to be true you know even if you're just having drinks with friends or you're at a dinner party and somebody says oh did you see that tv show i loved it so much i don't need to say that's the worst thing i've ever seen where is that really going to take us and in some ways i was like hmm sometimes i'll just take a minute take a beat say do i really need to say this out loud and weirdly i did learn that one from carnegie thank you dill carnegie yeah i guess all yeah it's the improv thing you just if you can't yes and then yeah. at, at a polite dinner conversation, you probably just keep your mouth shut. Um, <laughs> uh, not not a whole lot about the Betty Crocker stuff was, well, a, a lot of things about it were, were surprising to me. I don't want to spoil your entire book, but the, the one thing that shocked me about it was the, I mean, I hate to say it, but really the, the potentially life and death role that performing, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, making a decent dinner for your husband might play for a woman and, and a wife, at least in the eyes of Betty Crocker. There's a fairly chilling passage about, you know, you don't want your husband to become a mass murderer. So for heaven's sake, learn how to boil cabbage properly. Oh, yes, I remember this passage. This is actually, this is her first broadcast. And mind you, Betty Crocker is is a fake person invented by an ad team. I didn't, I didn't know that. I neither did I. I was I was very surprised. Yeah, she, you know, women start writing in letters and they don't know who to, they don't know, they want to sign their own name. So they invent this fake name and have their secretary sign these letters. And then she becomes, you know, a corporate character for decades. But yeah, so in her first uh, broadcast, which is in, I want to say 1924, she says something like, if you load up a man's stomach, stomach with soggy cabbage and boiled potatoes, is it any wonder that he goes out and gets into a fight? You should be grateful that all he does is show you a lot of temper. And so it's like, it's so harsh. I mean, again, life and death. You should be grateful that your husband's only screaming at you because you made a bad meal. He could have gone out and, and done much, much worse. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to believe that all in all, we're getting better all the time. And it's stuff like that that leads me to believe that I might not be wrong about that. For all of the dirty laundry we see aired from you know our society and the world at large, um, that would be an odd thing to read in a cookbook. And, I would hope and, so. And, and hey, good for us. Good for us. We're doing mm-hmm. okay. Um, all in all, I felt like the books that you cover were helpful at best, mostly benign at worst. Um, the outlier to that, at least based on what I read, was um, everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, which the, 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 the author might well have had benign intentions, but that seems like the only book that... W- I guess it's almost surprising that a book of conventional... That I have a book of massive conventional wisdom uh, tomes over a couple of centuries. There was only one in American history that you would describe as actu- like actively evil and destructive. So again, <laughs> again, a small victory. But you talk a little bit... I expect sort of a, a Dr. Ruth person. Mm-hmm. You're not threatened by the, the, the messenger 
because they seem sort of sexless themselves and they can just say sex can be a little bit fun and and Mm -hmm. and maybe just push your boundaries a little bit and it's okay because you're hearing it from a grandmother or grandfatherly figure but this was as as noah webster was to um the confines of the american english language as he saw it so was um the the attitude towards sex and everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask is that about right Yes, I think so. And and like you said, you know, it is surprising that that the book that to me seemed the most actively kind of frightening and maybe again, not on the intent of the author is this what seems like kind of a silly comical yeah. 60s sex book. My first, you know, uh, notion of the book was the Woody Allen movie. That's but right. I, as soon as you open the first edition and it's greatly changed in revised versions, it just is so blatantly, you know, anti-gay, anti-black, anti-woman. And in a way that feels like, wow, how did this come out in 1969? One of the things he says is like, you know, 80% of black people have a venereal disease, black people and white people shouldn't be having sex for this reason, or, you know, gay people are all monsters who like to wear women's clothes and are peeping toms. Like it just was so beyond the pale that, and it also, again, you think you're just going to get kind of the basics because there was no sex education, but it's more about titillation and almost fear mongering sometimes. And certainly there are moments where he kind of loosens the bounds. For instance, masturbation and oral sex were not really things that were talked about or seen as acceptable. And he's, you know, makes the claim that they're fine. But in a lot of other ways, I would say he kind of casts the sort of fun 60s vibe over what is a very conservative viewpoint. Right. Yeah. The, he was his point of view is coming from a, a ways away from Haight-Ashbury, basically. Certainly. Something that I kind of was wondering about, again, I don't expect you to know the answer, the The success of these books, really all of them, seems tied to um, how tantalizingly easy they seem to make the prospect of self-improvement. I don't know that anyone has ever really judged these books, and this continues to this, you know, stuff to the present day of, uh, you know, The Secret and stuff like that. Nobody really judges them by their their track record. You know, as mm-hmm. you say, How to Win Friends and Influence People, there were similar books that had slightly different pitches about how maybe you would do that through being more aggressive or intimidating or something like that. And I don't... Uh, I've known, uh, basically, it seems that their enduring success may have had more to do with the dream they sold and how effectively they sold it than any relation to what reality they they delivered, despite the fact that there were millions and millions and millions of people reading these who could tell you, well, yeah, I tried that stuff and it worked Mm -hmm. or it didn't. The Betty Crocker cookbook, I mean, I think the food was probably awful, but that was still the best we could do in 19... (laughs) It was still a step up from where where we, we had been. I don't know how many people would would be able to demonstrate like you you would think that a dale carnegie or a benjamin franklin if they were around could hold up one person and say this guy or this lady followed all the stuff and look at them now and you mm-hmm. and yet that doesn't seem like what, what the success is based on in any way yeah that's a good point i think you know yeah i would say i guess yes and no the 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 no is that what you do see in the later versions, like by the time you get to the 20th century and people can write into writers, they can write into publishers, you do see people saying, this changed my life. And you know, now I'm a rich man, now I'm a great cook. And then the advertising teams of those publishers can use that to sell the paperback copy and it just takes off. So that was certainly the case with Dale Carnegie and Betty Crocker where you have 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people saying this really did do something for me. But again, like you say, there were a lot of extremely, extremely similar books. So I think it's a mix of, you know, often good advertising and a good character. Like people really liked Dale Carnegie. He was a deeply charismatic person. He kind of, he himself had this very rags to riches story of going from being this indebted Missouri farm boy to being this very wonderful kind of charismatic public speaker filling up Carnegie Hall every night. So I think it's it's a mixture of good advertising, the right character, and good timing. So they often come out at periods of chaos or fear, whether it's the depression or post-war or, you know, the roaring 20s, when people want to feel reassured that something is within their control, even if a lot of things are not. You mentioned a couple of books that were uh, among your, your last cuts from the final list. I always wondered, what was who moved my cheese and how was how was that the best possible metaphor for whatever the author of who moved my cheese was was trying to convey i that's an excellent <laughs> question and i really don't remember which i think speaks to the fact that i yeah. don't think it is a good metaphor yeah i couldn't i couldn't tell you when i read it years ago in the research of it and now i could not tell you a single thing about that book yeah maybe maybe the best consigned to the dustbin um <laughs> I wonder, you know, you, you you took the book up to the fairly recent present. If you, if I told you that you were writing a sequel to this book in, you know, another 40, 50 years, it, mm. do, do you think there is anything happening? And it might not be a book. It really might be um, uh, an Instagram guru at this point mm. that's in our current day likely to be something that is remembered alongside the things that are in your book. Yes, I think it's both. I think, you know, a lot of the people who would be remembered 40, 50 years from now maybe built their platforms on Instagram or Twitter or what have you, and then to have a book that comes out. So I think if somebody like Glennon Doyle even would fall into this. I don't know who that is. Oh, man. Okay, so she's a best-selling author. She writes, um, uh, how to describe it? It's sort of like self-help aimed toward women and the idea is like you need to un her most recent book is called untamed and the idea is like you need to free yourself from these things that are holding you back same with rachel hollis who wrote girl wash your face the idea is you know if you can take these small steps like washing your face before you go to bed and you're going to be more successful in a kind of benjamin franklin millennial pink kind of way <laughs> so i do think there would be a lot of that like in many ways the same fake it till you make it, optimism, work ethic, meritocracy, these themes endure and they continue to find their way into best-selling books. Maybe not everybody's reading them, not a hundred million people are reading them, but they're still very much present or even she's not American, but I do think uh, Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up says something quite trenchant about people trying to fix their consumerism through some sort of radical overhaul. Uh, and, and that appeals to us as Americans because we do like, you know, some big change. It's not, I'm going to regulate my drinking. It's, I'm going to do dry, dry January. It's not, I'm going to take more walks. It's, I'm going to do CrossFit. So I yeah. think there's something that appeals appeals to us about that. Yeah, no, yeah, the, right. There has to be something else at work for people to want to watch somebody organize their closet. <laughs> yes. You would not think that would make for good TV, but it really yeah. does. Yeah, no, it's got to be scratching some other itch. Uh, finally, so we've talked about how this book has informed the way you understand how Americans understand ourselves. You've lived in a different country for a while now. In what way has that informed or affected um, 
how you understand what it means to be American or just what you think other people think about us. Basically, what are they saying about us? What are they saying about us? Well, it's tough. You know, I said to a French person who asked me, you know, uh, what's your experience as an American person? I said, you know, it's fine. The issue is that French people love to hate on America. And I get that there's a lot to hate on. But it's like, you know, I can tell my brother he's being an asshole. You can't tell my brother he's being an asshole. And so that's sort of the way that I put it. I think what is interesting is in general, the Parisians get a bad rap too, which is that if you can speak French or you make an effort to speak French, they're generally quite a warm and welcoming people. It's just when you throw in the open the doors and say, you know, like, where's the bathroom? People don't don't take kindly to that. Um, no, but- I'm, li- I'm living proof. If you just say, do you speak French? Uh, do you speak English poorly enough? They just answer you in English and you're, oh, yeah. and you're, and you're home free. And then they'll, they'll be super nice to you. So you're like, you've made the effort. That's yes. all they require. That's what I, that's what I found. Yeah. But what, what has been kind of a cool, uh, you know, sort of geographical distance is that it's, it's helps me see the ways in which I never even realized that I believed something because of where I came from. And especially, you know, you see that when it comes to work ethic, it's August. Um, and what I think is amazing about the French is that they do, you know, they're hardworking people, despite some of their cliches that we have about them, but everybody takes the month of August off to the point where city like Paris is completely deserted. And I have this thing where I, if I take more than a week off, I feel lazy. It's not even just that I feel like I'm a bad worker. I feel like I'm a bad person somehow. And I think in some ways that is a product of the environment in which I grew up. Work is not necessarily in and of itself a virtue. Um, and so that's that's certainly something. And then, you know, there's, there's a lot of some little small things um, just about the way that we understand uh, uh, community versus the self, individualism, all of these kind of ideas are, are always a little bit different wherever you go. Sure. Yeah. I don't think there was ever a section in the old farmer's almanac about what to do with your month off. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he did have, you know, if you have a an evening free in the dead of winter, here's a book to read. Yeah, exactly. If all the whittling the better is done, yourself. maybe you can read the Bible. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. The book is, it's a really enjoyable read. It just, it reads like, frankly, 13 short books that each could have been, that each could have been longer, you know, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm sure you, you felt it's the, it's the rare almost 500 page book that I feel, you know, you, you were probably, you were probably editing yourself. That's a very nice compliment. Yes. As Mark Twain said, if I had more time, I'm going to butcher this, it would have been shorter. And that is always <laughs> true. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Thank you again for, uh, for um, interrupting your evening to join us from France. The book is called Americanon, an unexpected U.S. history in 13 best selling books. Thanks so much. Thank you again for listening to The Tully Show. That was a fun one. I hope you will agree. I will remind you, if you're still looking for stuff to listen to now that this episode is over, you can go check out this week's Tully Time at my Patreon. It's free and open to the public. Just click on over to patreon.com slash Mike Tully. It's my name, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. 